Okay, we have seen, um, as we've gone through the book of Judges, the cycle that we, we experience. I want you to look at it, see where you see this cycle, and what's a little bit different here uh, in this particular case. But let me read the first ten verses. The sons of Israel did evil, again did evil, in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them in the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth, Hagaim. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he was oppressed, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah uh, between Ramah, Ramah and, and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinim, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor, uh, and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. And I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. Then Barak said to her, If you go with me, then I will go. But if you do not go with me, I will not go. She said, I surely will go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together at Kedesh. Ten thousand men went up with him. Deborah also went up with them. Now, where, what do we see? What do we see of the cycle? What is missing of the cycle? But what, what do we see of it, first of all? Israel did evil. Okay. Sons of Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The verse on that, Sarah? Verse 2. Okay. Verse one. Okay. Verse one. I'm like, okay. oh, there's not a number there. Must be. Okay. There's a big four. So. Okay. Right. I got it. So, yeah. sons of Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Of course, something that we've seen further explained as forsaking the Lord and serving other gods. And these are passages all from Judges where we see that idea. The second step: the sons of Israel did evil then. Lord sold them into the hands of okay. Canaan. The Lord sold them into the hands here of Jabin, king of Canaan. And that is in verse 2, David says. Yes, 4-2. So they did evil. The Lord sold them into the hands of an enemy. We've seen that idea before in um, other passages. And um, so, the third step, they cried out, cried out to the Lord. Cried to the Lord. And boy, what verse is that? Three. That's in verse 3. For 3, 
And we've seen that idea in uh, these passages before. They've cried out to him. And uh, but what is missing? What is missing in this? What is a little bit different in this case than in the others? It doesn't say that the anger the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. Okay, yeah, it doesn't have every element. So there are a lot of things that are different. So so that really might not be a fair question. But it doesn't specifically say that the Lord raises up the deliverer. Now, is that basically an idea in the narrative, something very close to that? Yes. But, but it doesn't say it in the same way. And uh, that raises some questions. Why doesn't it say it in the same way? And also, let me ask you something else. And I don't, I, I don't know if we get a definite answer on this. Who really is the deliverer in this case from a human perspective? Jail. Is, yeah, yeah. Is it is it Barak? Is it is it Deborah? Is it Barak? Or is it Jael? Who is the deliverer? God raises up, but you don't find that kind of idea stated this way. Now, we're, we're going to come back to uh, uh, a lot of things within verses 1 through 10. We pointed out in verse 1 that Ehud must have had some positive influence because after Ehud died, it seems like things degenerated. God sold them into the hands of Jabin after they repeat their evil behavior. And the Bible tells us that Jabin was king of Canaan. Now again, not to review everything we said the other day, but there was a Jabin, king of Canaan, king of Hazor, back in Joshua 11, who was killed. Apparently, like Pharaoh in Egypt, or like Abimelech among the Philistines. This name, Jabin, was a dynastic name, a name of the family, name of the dynasty. He is king of Canaan. He reigns in Hazor. What do you remember about Hazor and it in relation to other cities around? This is particularly for those of you who were in Joshua class. you remember anything significant about Hazor? It was very large. It's very large. Remember, it was about 200 acres. While most cities of that time were between 10 and 15 acres. So Hazor, a virtual New York City in the midst of the land of Canaan. And uh, he reigned in Hazor. I want you to look at the term army in verse 2. This will particularly be meaningful to those of you who were in Psalms class last night. The word for commander of the army in 4-2, that is the word host both in verse 2 and in verse 7. When you said that term Lord of hosts, what does it mean? It means Lord of armies in some cases. And in verse 2 and verse 7, the army of Sisera is referred to as his host. Now there are other words used for his army in other places. When you think of Sisera, you think of this battle, you think about the Lord giving them into the hands of this enemy. What do you think about, about Sisera that 
puts Israel at a decided disadvantage in this battle? Chariots. 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 That's the closest thing to a tank in that day. And the text says they had 900 iron chariots. 900 iron chariots. Now, one of the things I ask you to do, and if anyone has this, you feel free to call it out. Where are some verses within the text that call attention to the chariots of the enemy? 4-3 is obviously 1. 13. Okay. 13 does that. There are a couple verses before 13 if I want to write them in order. 7. Okay, 7. 7, 13. What else? 13 does it twice. 15 does. And 16 does. Also, when we get to chapter 5, there will be a reference to his chariot in 528. In, in, in Judges 5, verse 28. So, the text never lets us forget how from a military's perspective, Jabin and his military commander at Sisera have a definite advantage. The victory is going to be from God. Often, uh, the... Uh, when you read something, when you see something as a movie or story, they might present somebody as an unbeatable foe to surprise you by the ending of somebody coming out from nowhere and beating them. The biblical story often does that to show us that the power is from God, that God has the power to give victory. Now, I want you to see, and this, this goes into chapter 5, but in contrast... To all those iron chariots that the enemy has, look at chapter 5, verse 8. In chapter 5, verse 8, as they are preparing for battle, as Israel was preparing for battle, it says, new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates, not a shield or spear was seen among the 40,000 in Israel. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, the volunteers among the people. Bless the Lord. So while the enemy, it's called attention to their chariots, their iron chariots, their 900 iron chariots, in contrast to that, Israel is almost without any weapon at all. If Israel is going to prevail in this conflict, it's going to have to be from God. But all of these accounts are given to us to increase our faith, to increase our trust. And as we read them, as we reflect on them, they can certainly do that. Now, we're introduced here to Deborah. And a question I don't think I asked, but I should have, is Deborah is spoken of in 4.4 as a prophetess. A prophetess. That term is applied to who all in Scripture? It's only used about five or six times 
in the Old Testament. And uh, But who all is it applied to? Do you remember? Who would be some people who are described as... as how you make the plural of that? Okay, Miriam. She does that by singing and praising God in Exodus 15, verse 20. Miriam does. Okay. Another one who appears twice in, in Kings and Chronicles is a woman by the name of Huldah. You remember how she appears? Whose time it is? It's Josiah's time and he sends to inquire of her as far as the things that he's read in the book of the law. Uh, in 2 Kings chapter uh, 22 and verse 14. It's also in 2 Chronicles 34 verse 20. There is a woman named Noadiah. I believe, I'm, uh, I believe that is correct. Noadiah. That is a prophetess in Nehemiah 6.14 who has caused Nehemiah great problems. It seems like that she is not a faithful servant of God, but is pretending to be. And uh, Isaiah's wife is called a prophetess in Isaiah 8 verse 3. So those are some passages in the Old Testament that use the term. Now let me give you another passage that doesn't use the term prophetess, but it says your daughters who prophesy, and that is Ezekiel 13 verses 17 through 22. And that is rebuking these women for being false prophetess. They, they, they spoke where God did not speak to them. There's at least one woman in the New Testament that's called a prophetess. You remember who she is? Anna. Anna, yes, very good. Anna is in Luke 2 and verse 36. Philip is said to have four virgin daughters who prophesy. They are not called a prophetess, but, but you know, obviously they, they prophesied. So they would have fit that category, Acts 21, verse 8. Verse 9 calls them a It does say a prophetess? Okay, Acts 21, 9. Okay, I didn't remember that it was called, used of them. So very good. Acts 21, 8 and 9. But Deborah is a prophetess. She's judging Israel. She sits under a palm tree of Deborah. And she uh, is she rendering judgment here? Um, it was interesting that Daniel Block, in the very good commentary that I mentioned to you all, as just being so insightful, he doesn't think... That, that when it says she's judging, that it means she's just giving judicial decisions like we might think, but that she is pronouncing God's word for this crisis. In other words, she's going to call for Barak to come down and fight the army. She, he thinks that's what verses 4 and 5 refer to. Uh, I don't know. But if, if anybody in the book of Judges fulfills the traditional role of what we think of when we think of a judge. One who hears cases. If anybody does, it's Deborah. But she may not either. Uh, Samuel will later, in 1 Samuel chapter 7, do that kind of thing. But the text says, in verse 6, she sent and summoned 
Barak, uh, the son of Abinim, from Kadesh Naphtali. So she sends and she calls him and she says, God has commanded you to go to Mount Tabor and to take 10,000 men from Zebulun and Naphtali. And I'm going to draw Sisera. I'm going to draw him uh, there and I'm going to give him into your hand. Now, um, it is interesting to me and I really, I'm sure I realized this at some point. But I'd forgotten it. Do you know outside of this account, Deborah is not mentioned, Judges 4 and 5. But Barak or Barak is mentioned a couple of times. He's mentioned in Hebrews 11.32. He's also mentioned, it seems like, in 1 Samuel 12 verse 11, it's maybe rendered Bedan in your versions instead of Barak. But there's there's a reason for that. But it could be a reference to Barak. Some it seems to be a reference to Barak. But that may show us that again, maybe Barak is more prominent than Deborah. And of course maybe then too, like um, like we said earlier that maybe it could just be that Jael is the deliverer, uh, like Sarah said earlier. Now, um, in verse... Uh, but what is, what, is, what is the response of Barak when, when Deborah the prophetess, and apparently people know she speaks from God, and Deborah, comes, and Deborah says, um, the Lord said, uh, the Lord is going to... The Lord has said, go and march in Mount Tabor. And what is his response? Um, you've got to go with me, Mommy. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, that may just be my perception of it. It may be. It may just be your perception. You know, it may... Um, uh, but it may be that voice is a very good indication of, of his feelings. But one of the things that I think we do see in this case, and particularly in him. I don't know how to answer every question here about the role Deborah plays with some of the things the Bible as a whole says about the role of women. I don't know all the answers. But I will say that one of the things that does seem to be a problem here is male leadership, or lack thereof that I will go if you'll go with me. I mean, here is a man not willing to go to battle unless a woman accompanies him. It does show us how much respect Deborah has that the people in the land know that her presence is similar to God's presence. But it does show a failure of male leadership at the same time because God says I'm going to give you I'm going to give him into your hand and he's saying I'm not going to go unless you go but I would also say this that the kind of failure that he demonstrates here isn't unique to here in the book of Judges I mean, when God calls Gideon to go deliver Israel what's, what's his response I, I can't do it you know, not me Yeah, and, and Judges 6 verses 15 and 16 he, and he gives excuses Moses gave excuses before Jeremiah will give excuses later 
And so often Gideon or Barak fits right into a picture of people who during the time they were called were very hesitant to take take responsibility that God was calling them to. Because in maybe some of this, maybe some of this is just given to us to underline that they knew how enormous this task was. They knew how enormous this task is and it only strengthens our conviction that God is the one who brings deliverance when all the dust has settled. But if if you go with me, then I will go. If you do not go with me, I will not go. Yes? Uh, Another way of looking at that, he might have... You know, this, if you're willing to go with me, this is confirmation that the Lord has told you okay. this is going to happen. Uh, if you're not willing to go with me, then I'm not too sure what you're telling me is true. Okay. It, it could be. It could be. Uh, it, it does seem, though, he has a lot of confidence in her. <laughs> And um, a lot of confidence, and maybe you know that's what leads him to to say that. But but I understand what you're saying, David. Uh, I do understand that. Um, a couple of things I was going to say. If you look at verse seven again, the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. The Lord sold Israel into the hand of Jabin king of Canaan. But now in verse 7, God is saying to Barak, I will give him into your hand. They had fallen in the enemy's hand and now God is giving the enemy into Barak's hand. In 4.2, the Lord sold Israel into the hand of Jabin. That same word is used in verse 9 when the statement is made, I will surely go with you, Deborah says, nevertheless the honor shall not be yours on the journey you're about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of the woman. Just like the Lord has sold Israel into the hands of Jabin, now God is going to sell, same word, Sisera, into the hands of the woman. So the punishments that God used these nations to inflict on His people, now God's repaying those nations. God's giving those nations into that nation into Israel's hands. And God is selling out their lead characters into the hands of God's people. Uh, but So Deborah affirms, I will go, but because of your unbelief, I'm not going to, you're not going to get the honor of killing killing Sisera. So apparently it was a great honor in battle to, to kill the military commander of the foreign army. And, and I can imagine that. Because I think if I was ever in a battle, I would, I'd be thankful just to return home uh, alive. But, but it was a great honor. Where else do you see in Judges that it was considered a dishonor to be killed by a woman? story of Abimelech because the old woman took the stone and threw it down on his head. Okay. She threw a stone on his head 
And, it, and then he said, kill me so that they don't say yeah. he was killed by a woman. Yeah, yeah, that's right. What? Kill me real fast, just his armor bearer. You kill me so no one can say a woman killed me. And, I mean, how can a warrior go home and face his family if he's been killed by a woman in battle? I mean, it's just it's embarrassing. And, uh, and he knows that, and so uh, he, he wants to be killed by his armor bearer. And I recognize the contradiction in what I said. But anyway, in verse 10, uh, Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together at Kedesh, and 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. That doesn't mention, it mentions 10,000 men, but, but the enemy has almost one-tenth of that number in chariots, much less talking about people. But I want you to notice what tribes are particularly involved in this battle. In this passage, the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun are particularly involved. And remember that Barak appears to be from the tribe of Naphtali in 4 verse 6. And I want you to look over at 518 and I want you to see something that's said there. There's kind of a roll call of tribes given in Judges 5. And it will talk about tribes that were involved in the conflict and tribes that were not involved in the conflict. But two that were particularly praised were these tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. In 518, Zebulun was a people who despised their lives even unto death. And Naphtali also on the high places of the field. They risk their lives in battle and they are praised for this in Judges 5 and verse 18. Now we'll see that some other tribes, when we get there, Lord willing, on Sunday, we will see that other tribes were involved in that battle. Uh, But those two are the foundation, it seems, of the army of Barak. Any questions on those first ten verses? Any, any thoughts that you have? We're introduced here in 4.11 to another character who's going to play a bigger part later on. But right now it just says, Heber the Kenite had separated himself from the Kenites, from the sons of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and they pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. So this just tells us that Heber the Kenite is close to where this battle is going to take place. And that's going to be an important element in the story later on. Kenites. You know, what do you remember about the Kenites? Anything? One of the things, do you remember in Exodus 17 when Israel was doing battle, when Israel uh, comes out of the land of Egypt and they're confronted in battle and a nation does battle with them, and this is when Moses holds up his hand, Israel prevails. When he lets down his hand, Israel is defeated. You remember that account. Who are they fighting against? in that account in Exodus 17. They're fighting 
the Amalekites. Fighting the Amalekites. Now, right after that, we read in Exodus 18, 1 through 12, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, Ruel, Hobab, he's got a several names, but he shows kindness to Israel. The kindness of the Kenites is contrasted with the bitterness and hatred of the Amalekites. Now, when we get to 1 Samuel 15, 1 Samuel 15, God tells Saul, you go and utterly destroy, utterly destroy the Amalekites. Utterly destroy them. But, in that verse, in verse 6, there is a message sent to the Kenites, leave this area, get out, evacuate, because we're going to come and destroy the Amalekites. So God remembers the kindness the Kenites showed to Israel in that case. And so I'm just reviewing that to emphasize there were good relations between the Kenites and the Israelites. Good relations between them. And that's going to play a part, it seems, in the story. Uh, but when we get to verse 12, they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinim, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Tabor. And Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him from Herosheth, Hagiim to the river Kedish. And Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued on chariots. Excuse me, Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth Hagiim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the sword. Not even one was left. So the battle ensues in verses 12 through verse 15. Or 16. The battle ensues. Sisera has all of his weapons at his disposal. He has all his army along with his 900 iron chariots. But Deborah says, This is the day the Lord has given him into your hand. Now, we talked about before, we talked about before these verses that reference. The iron chariots of Sisera. Okay? All these verses, quite a contrast between the iron chariots of Sisera and the lack of a weapon in Israel. How many passages stress that the Lord, or it could be God, referring to Yahweh, that God gives 
the victory in battle. How many, what are some specific passages here that stress that? Throughout the whole chapter. Verse 7. Okay, verse 7. I will draw out for you, Sisera, the commander of the army. 4 verse 7. Very good. What else? Verse 9. Verse 9. I will surely go for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of the woman. So verse 9. What else? What what else? 14. 14 does it a couple of times, doesn't it? The Lord has given Sisera into your hands. The Lord has gone out before you. Then in verse 15, you see the same thing. The Lord routed Sisera before all his chariots and his army. And then there's one more later on in the text. Where is it? At least one more. Verse 23, God gave the victory. So just as surely as the text won't let us forget the military advantage that Sisera and Jabin have, it will not let us forget that the Lord is responsible for this victory. The odds only emphasize greater the wonder of God's victory. But I also want to stress this. In verse 15, the Bible says the Lord routed Sisera. The Lord routed Sisera. Now, that particular word, I was just going to give you a few instances. This word doesn't appear a lot in the Hebrew Old Testament. What I'm about to give you is not every case, but I'm going to give you some of them. And I'm going to give you some of them, and then we're going to come back and we're going to explain them. But in Exodus 14, 24, Exodus 23, and uh, verse 27, Deuteronomy 7, verse 23, Joshua. You would be me. Jesus even told Joshua. The gospel according to Luke began by telling us about the births of John the Baptist. Okay. <laughs> now that we've completed the review. Okay. I could have used that as a good distraction while I was writing these things on the board, but okay. Here are some places that use this same word translated translated routed. Okay. Now, what's the case? What is the case? We appreciate you taking care of that, right? But here, this is when Israel is crossing the sea and the enemy is thrown into confusion and the enemy says the Lord is fighting for Israel. These two passages are the same idea. These two passages talk about the Lord sending the hornets ahead of Israel to throw them into confusion. This is in Joshua 10.10. Remember, more people died from the hailstones than from the storm, than from the uh, sword that day. And God sent a hailstone that confounded the people. And then in 1 Samuel 7 verse 10, 
this was a case where the Philistines are fighting Israel and it's during harvest, the time when it doesn't rain and stuff and it thunders, it disorients the Philistines, it confounds the Philistines and God gives Israel victory. Now, what does all that mean? What I'm saying is this word is often used when God used some kind of means to throw the enemy into disorientation and confusion and just to totally, uh, totally disturb them so that they were defeated in battle. Could that be the case here? Look at Judges 5, verses 20 and 21. Judges 5, 20 and 21. Now, the, the battle is on Mount Tabor. The river that's near is the Kishon River. And all of this is in North Israel. And I apologize for something here. I apologize that I did not bring a good map to pass around if you don't have some kind of little indication of where this is. We don't know all the details. But we do know kind of the idea, the, the general area. But the Kishon River is there. Look at Judges 5 in verse uh, 19 through 21. The kings came and fought. They fought the kings of Canaan at Taanach uh, near the waters of Megiddo. They took no plunder in silver. The stars fought from heaven... From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, oh my soul, march on with strength. Now what am I saying? That poetic description in Judges 5 may show us that God sent some kind of flash flood the waters of the Kishon are overflowing. They render these chariots that Sisera and his army had ineffective. And Sisera even flees his chariot. Just like in these other cases, God uses weather or God uses some kind of phenomena to, to throw the enemy into disorientation. It seems like to me, when that description in Judges 5, 19-21, that God uses the weather to throw the enemy into this state of disorientation so that their, their chariot advantage is negligent. It, it, just, it just disappears and even becomes a hindrance instead of a hell. But God did that. To give his people victory. And um, I mean really it just it's it's amazing. Now also I want you to think about this. Those Canaanites who served Jabin and Sisera, who would they generally attribute with controlling a flash flood and a storm and the rain, who would they say would have been responsible for that? Baal. Baal, yeah. And so here you have things that these Canaanites would have attributed to Baal that the Bible says the Lord's doing. The Lord is taking Baal on, on his own turf and defeating him and showing that he is 
God. And um, any questions there about 11 through 16? Anything? Did you, you have a thought, Miss Rachel? I do have a question about the Kenites. You are saying that Kenites were kind because of that God showed some favor to them. Yes, they, 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 they were kind yeah. in Exodus 18. And because of that kindness that they showed to Israel, because of that kindness, then God told God shows kindness to them and tells them to depart from among the Amalekites. And I think it's even stated that way yeah. in that passage in 1 Samuel 15. Yeah. My next part is that so it doesn't mean that Kebon, the Kenite, turned to God. That is why God favored him. Or just because of kindness. Because they were pagans, right? Yes, I, 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 I don't know. We don't know all the details, Miss Rachel. We, we, we do know. I would say, first of all, it's working on this level. You remember the promises to Abraham that God says, the one who curses you, I will curse. And so that's what the Amalekites receive. They curse Israel and they're cursed. And the ones who bless you will be blessed. The Kenites bless Israel, and as a result, they are blessed. It's a working out of those promises to Abraham. Did that, in the process, did the Kenites learn some things about Israel's God? Well, you remember that Jethro at that time says, I know there's no God in all the earth except you know, the God of Israel there in Exodus 18, verses 10 and 11. So, so uh, they do know some things about God, but how much of her, of what we're about to read happens because she has faith in God as the deliverer or she simply recognizes these ties to Israel? We're, we're not told enough to know, to know the details. It's a good question. That's a good question, and I appreciate the opportunity to, to answer that. But let's, let's see, what, see what J.L. does. Verse 16, or verse 17. Sisera fled away on foot. He's abandoned that chariot, which hasn't done him any good now. It says he fled away on foot to the tent of J.L., the wife of Heber, the Kenite. Heber was the one we're introduced to in verse 11. This is his wife. And in verse 17 says, There was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. So there's, there's a peaceful relationship between the king of Hazor and Heber. But there are also peaceful relationships between Heber and Israel, which will trump which. Verse 18. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her in the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And she said, she, So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink, and then she covered him. 
He said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and said, Is there anyone here that you shall say no? But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg, seized a hammer in her hand, went secretly to him, and drove the tent peg into his temple. And he and it went through it went through into the ground, for he was sound asleep and exhausted, so he died. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered uh, with her, and behold, Sisera was lying dead with his tent peg in his temple. Now, I cannot imagine... How after a battle like this, and a soldier had spent all of his strength, not only trying to win the battle, but then trying to run for his life, when you think you have reached a place of safety, I cannot imagine how quickly you would probably go to sleep. He is thirsty and weary from this battle. She, he asked for water. She gives him milk. Was that to make him more sleepy? I don't know. Uh, it is also mentioned in verse in chapter five twenty five. If you look there in five twenty five, he asked for water. She gave him milk in a magnificent bowl. She brought him curds. So it may be she brought him milk. She may have brought him curds, which was something closely equivalent to, to some types of yogurt we might have for, for him to eat. I, I, I don't know. Um, but, but, but he eats them apparently and after giving her the instruction just to tell everybody that no one's here, he, he probably quickly goes to sleep. The description of her to me is, is humorous in some ways. She takes his tent peg and hammer. And women were often in charge of, you know, putting up the tent. So she's probably good with this hammer. And, um, and uh, she goes over to him quietly and softly and then delivers the death blow and, and kills him. Now, I know that this seems in a lot of ways as gruesome as the Ehud story in Judges 3. I mean, where, you know, Ehud... Uh, killed Eglon and didn't take the blade back out. Same kind of story. God is using all these violent means to bring down violent people uh, too. But it's interesting in verse 16 and verse 22 or I, I, I should yeah, it's verse 16 and verse 22 in both of those verses you have Barak pursuing Sisera. Barak, Barak's running after him. But in between, we find out who really catches him and who really kills him. This happens so many times in the Bible, we lose sight of it. But often in the same chapter, you see a prophecy given. It is often fulfilled. A prophecy was given that the Lord's going to give Sisera into your hand. He's going to defeat Sisera. But because you've not trusted him, the honor of killing him is going to go to a woman. That prophecy was made in verses 7-9 through of this chapter. And now it's fulfilled. God gives victory to the people. He gives victory over Sisera. And Sisera is given into the hands of the woman. Everything that was said, every prophecy that was made, was fulfilled. 
And so he sees Sisera lying there with the tent peg in his hand. And in verse 25, or excuse me, verse 23, God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel. God subdued him. In, in verse 24, the hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavier, heavier and heavier upon Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of, of, of Canaan. Excuse me. Upon Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. So, uh, God gives Israel the victory over Jabin, the king of Canaan. What other things did I not touch on that I should have or that you have questions about? Anything, Sarah? I was going to say, I, I'm just trying to figure out in my mind how big this tent peg is. Because I'm thinking when you're going camping in the woods now, you know, the tent peg is like this and it's aluminum and it'll bend when you look at it and, as opposed to something with a little bit more fat. I would imagine since they probably live there, this is probably a bigger tent and probably a, um, a more substantial tent peg. Yeah. You know, because the last thing you want to do if you're JL is to, is to drive a tent peg so big or so small through his head it's not going to kill him. Uh, you want to make sure he's dead. And, and there doesn't seem to be any doubt about that. But I, I, I could not, obviously archaeology can't dig up a tent. Mm -hmm from 1400 BC uh, but but I would imagine that these pegs would have been pretty good size and um, that, that uh, but it, it is it is not it is a it's not a sanitized book in a certain way <laughs> but it does show us that even in the midst of the rough and difficult things of life, God is still watching over His people. And God is still... And, and as, as gruesome as this may be, the point is that God is giving victory. And, and this was a formidable foe. I think both Eglon and Jabin and Sisera, they were all formidable foes. And so in a certain way, for them to come to their demise in such a kind of broken, <laughs> shameful way, was something that the Israelites would have celebrated and would have rejoiced in the power of their God. Now, I want us to try to read Judges 5 on Sunday. As we look at Judges 5, it is going to be a poetic retelling of the same thing that we just looked at. So, if you have, you know, let it add to what we've seen. Let it add to this, but always keep in mind the things we studied tonight and things you've studied the last few days uh, as you read it. So thank you. Uh, also we're going to say in, in Brad you're supposed